Well, it's 2020, so I don't think I need to go into a, a big spiel here about how we live in a, a world full of uncertainty. Uh, we, we're well aware of that at this point, but, but we understand, right? Life, life is hard. Uh, life is uncertain. Uh, there's, a, there's a powerful line that Shakespeare writes in Macbeth. He says, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, and new sorrows strike heaven on the face. That, that is a, a haunting line as you think about it. It's also a beautifully written haunting line. But, but the point is that every day, every day, there are so many people around this world who are experiencing life-shattering, soul-crushing losses. Right now, that, that, that's the reality of the world that we live in. But, but it, it's not even just those great losses that, that, that make it difficult in those seasons to trust God sometimes. Uh, most, most of us don't experience that level of loss every day. That's not every day. But, but what, we, what we do experience is that we, we get discouraged because it feels like we're, we're constantly living like knee deep in like the muck of smaller adversity after smaller adversity after smaller adversity. And those smaller adversities start to, to build up. Those little frustrations, they all add up and they overwhelm us all the same. And the author of Hebrews is addressing a, a group of first century Jewish Christians who are living in the face of persecution, right? They're, they are facing small adversity after small adversity, and some days they are facing great and tragic loss. And, and they're staring it in the face. And, and in that adversity, they're, they're facing doubt. They're wrestling with doubt. They're doubting. Is God with us? Is he, does he love us? They're facing the temptation in the midst of that to turn away from trusting in Christ and his word of promise. And, and here at the end of chapter 6, we, we really kind of come to what I, I would say is, is the heart of this sermon that is the book of Hebrews, uh, where the preacher here reminds us here is that, that God can be trusted. Even more, God must be trusted. And that, that in Christ, we have an anchor for the soul, a, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that will steady and sustain us through the uncertainties and the hardships of this life. That's what we see here in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and, and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And by the way, if you're here today, you don't have a Bible of your own. We do have some free copies of the Bible at the connection table. We'd love to give you a copy. So on your way out, just stop there and, and grab one of those. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincing, convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this, this time to gather together here in this room, uh, online throughout uh, the city here, uh, and just sit under your word. In, in a time where we have all been walking through uh, adversity after adversity, it feels like, um, we, we need this word today. We need to hear that we have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul in Jesus Christ. We have a certain hope that we can cling to. We can have strong encouragement uh, that, that you are with us in the midst of this and you will not leave us or forsake us. And that better things, better days lie ahead of us, not, not just in this world, but, but in the world to come when you usher in the fullness of your kingdom and glory. Lord, would you help us to be people who cling to you, who live for you, who trust in you, Holy Spirit, move us, change us by your grace. We pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Well, if you weren't here with, with us earlier, like chapter six begins with this very strong word of warning. But the, chapter six ends with, with every bit as strong uh, a word of, of assurance and encouragement and, and pointing us to the certainty of hope that, it, that can be found in Jesus Christ if we will put our hope and trust in him. Uh, the text tells us that, that God can be trusted. He can be trusted. It tells us that, that God must be trusted. And it even gives us in this some practical guidance for how to trust God. First, it tells us that God, God can be trusted. In an uncertain world where it feels like the rug is constantly being pulled out from under you, uh, you can trust God. You can. Why? Because God is trustworthy. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. God is trustworthy. And the preacher of Hebrews here makes this point by pointing to a person that, that his original hearers and readers would be quite familiar with. They're, they're Jewish Christians after, after all, right? Uh, they would, they'd be very familiar with him. He points us to Abraham in Genesis. Uh, some of us may not be as familiar with Abraham, so I'm gonna, we're going to get a little background here. But in Genesis, we see God calling Abraham. To, to leave his country and to follow God. And, and God's going to show him this land that he's going to give to him and his descendants. God promises Abraham that he's going to make him into this great nation. That he's going to give Abraham an heir, a, a, a child, right? Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they're going to have a son. And from that son is going to come this great nation, innumerable. Abraham got that promise when he was 75 years old. Not exactly in uh, the prime uh, child-rearing years. Uh, when he's 100 years old, 25 years later, the promise still hasn't come true. It hasn't come to fruition. Abraham was 100 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 90 years old, and they were still childless. So 25 years later, at this point, they're still wandering in this land without settling down, right? Waiting for a child. 25 years. In Romans 4.18, we, we read about Abraham. It says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
How did Abraham have such confidence and trust in God uh, and, and God's promise to him? How did, how did he have such confidence and trust in that? We often make the mistake, I think, of thinking about people like Abraham in the Bible as like these superheroes of the faith, uh, these incredibly unique, gifted people who are so unlike us. But the reality is they're not unlike us. Abraham is not as great of a person as you might think. He's like you. He's like me. So, so how did he come to have such hope and trust in the Lord? Well, in Genesis 15, God comes again to Abraham and he tells him to look at the stars and to count, him, count them. And, and he tells Abraham, so shall your offspring be. As many of the stars you see, you can't possibly count them all. That's how many offspring are you, you are going to have, right? That's how many your descendants are going to be. God tells him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you this land of promise to your descendants. And Abraham actually in this moment asks God, how am I to know this? Right? How? How, how am I to be certain? Why, why should I believe you? So God says, I'll show you. And he has Abraham get some animals. And he has him take those animals and he has him this is a little graphic, but he has them cut them in half, shedding their blood. And then God, in the evening, he appears as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And, and in the, that form, he, he passes through the pieces. And in this, God is making a covenant with Abraham. He's making a promise to Abraham that he will make him into a great nation. And he will give his descendants this land of promise. And this is incredibly transformative for Abraham. He's, he's shaken to the core by this. Why? We see in, in these days, in those days, like this, you didn't like go make a contract or sign a covenant by, by getting a pen and signing your name on a piece of paper like we do when you, you buy a house or whatever. You, you, you sign your name down as like, I'm, I'm good for this and I stand behind this and, and you come get me if I don't, right? You didn't do that, right? In the ancient Near East, the way that you made a covenant was that you cut a covenant, right? You literally took animals and you cut them in half and you split the pieces apart and both parties entering into that covenant would walk through those pieces of that dead animal, basically saying, may I live up to my word or may it be done to me what has been done to this animal, May I be cut to pieces. May I be cut off if I do not stand up and follow through on my word of promise here. That's how they made a covenant. Both, both parties of the covenant would do this. But, but do you see what God does in Genesis 15? What he does with Abraham. He doesn't have Abraham walk through the pieces. Only God walks through it. Only God passes through. And God himself was saying May I be cut off if I don't follow through on my word of promise and see this done. That's what amazes Abraham. That's what transforms him, enables him to hope against hope, to believe against hope. That, that's important background for what we see here in Hebrews 6. But there's, there's more. For in verse 14, Hebrews 6, 14, we have a quote from Genesis twenty two seventeen. Now in Genesis 22, fast forwards a little bit, Abraham and Sarah have had their baby, Isaac. And Isaac has grown. He's a, he's a young boy. 
And in Genesis 22, God, we're told, God tests Abraham, telling him to take his son, his only son, and to offer him as a burnt offering. This is easily the most shocking command given to anyone in the Bible. Take your son and, and slaughter him. But Abraham displays ready obedience even in the face of such a horrifying command. How? How could he do that? Well, we get the answer in Genesis 22, verse 5. It says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Do you hear that? Abraham is telling him that moment as he's going to sacrifice his son. I'm, I'm certain we're going to come back together. The two of us, Isaac and I, will come back to you together. The author of Hebrews tells us more in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. He, he, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He's so confident that God is going to follow through on his promise that even if he, God has him carry this out, God will resurrect Isaac. They will come back together. He, he believed his promise, God's promise, even in the face of this shocking command, that one way or another, God is going to preserve Isaac and keep his word. As the account continues in Genesis 22, uh, Abraham and Isaac, they go to this place that God told them to go, uh, told Abraham to go. We read Isaac realizing, hey, there's, there's wood and there's fire, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And you can read in the text that it, it starts to dawn on this boy that, that he's the lamb. And, and Abraham binds his son and he places him on the altar, on the wood. And, and, and amazingly, Isaac is not fighting. He's willingly participating in this willingly submitting to his father. And Abraham, just as Abraham takes the knife to slaughter his son, the angel of the Lord calls out to stop him. And the Lord, of course, provides a ram in the thicket to be the sacrifice in Isaac's place. And we hear this final pronouncement from the angel of the Lord in Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 and through 18. Verse 17 is what's quoted here in Hebrews 6. He says, the angel of the Lord says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you I will, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of, the, of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now the significance of, the preacher of Hebrews is trying to point to here is that while God had repeatedly promised Abraham to make him into a great nation, here God swore an oath to do so. And the logic of Hebrews is that, that it tells us that when God swears an oath, right? What, what happens when we swear an oath? If, if you're called to testify in a court of law, right, you, you place your hand on the Bible and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me, God. We swear by a higher authority. But God has nothing greater to swear by than himself. So he swears by himself. He swore by himself. He didn't swear on the heavens and the earth, for those are lesser things compared to God. Those are things that will pass away he swore by himself. 
question Abraham had in Genesis 15. How do I know? How do I know? How can I trust you? Is like the question many of us have. We, we, we wonder, we question, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us. He's, he's, trying, he's saying to us, you, you can't know anything without trusting something or someone in order to know it. Right? Anything that you, you think you know or you're confident that you know, you know because you have trusted something to know it. Right? If you think you know something, it means that you, you've trusted your mind, that your mind is, is functioning properly, or you've trusted your eyes, that they're they are seeing properly, or you've trusted your logic, that you're, you're, you're thinking in the right way, or, or you're, you're trusting your friend who told you this, this source of information, or wait for it, you're trusting something that you read on the internet, uh, which we should all do blindly at all times, right? Um, just always trust that. No, don't. Uh, but, or you're trusting the experts or, or you're trusting popular opinion. There is no way for you to know anything without trusting in something in order to know it. And what God says to Abraham is, look at all the other things that you can trust. Look at all the other authorities you could possibly swear by. I am far and away so much more reliable than any of them. And I say to you, friends, who are you trusting? What are you trusting? The reality is that your life is not in your hands. Some of us in the room are more or less aware of that. But your life is not in your hands. Your plans are not all going to go the way that you plan them. And God is saying to you, either I am the foundation of everything in your life, and, and everything is secure in me, no matter how insane the circumstances of your life might get and might seem to be, or I am not your foundation and everything is absolutely insecure, no matter how together all the circumstances of your life might appear to be. God's promise to Christian, Christians is that in Christ, you have an unshakable hope. That no matter what is happening in your life, you have hope, certain hope, not like, I hope uh, you know, it snows on Christmas or that we even get to have Christmas. Uh, you, know, not, you know, not like that sort of hope, but like certain unshakable hope. Unshakable hope that your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven by the finished work of Christ, paid for in Him. You have certain hope of eternal life in a much better promised land than any land that was guaranteed to Abraham. A much better promised land where there will be no more suffering, there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more death. There will only be, instead, fullness of joy and glory and life with Jesus forever. God has promised that to you in Christ. He has sworn an oath by himself and he cannot lie. You can trust him because you see, God didn't just walk through the pieces in making that covenant. God himself was actually in the person of Christ cut off on your behalf. 
to secure this promise. Jesus went to the cross to pay for your inability to keep any covenant of your own. He paid for your sins. And he declares from his cross, it is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. God can be trusted. But the text is also telling us God must be trusted. He must be trusted. I love verse 19 so much that I have it tattooed on my arm. Uh, But what it says is, is that we have an anchor for the soul, that Jesus Christ is an anchor for the soul. And what that implies is that you need an anchor for the soul, that your soul desperately needs an anchor, that the nature of your soul is such that without an anchor, it's at risk, right? It's adrift. It's in danger. After all, the purpose of an anchor, uh, that's, that's the purpose of an anchor on a ship. We understand that, right? Uh, any nautical people in the room? Uh, you, you, the purpose of the anchor is that the anchor goes down to the depths so to secure the ship's position, to keep it from drifting off. But there are a couple things that are essential for the, the anchor to give you security. Two things for it to work as it should. First, the anchor has to be attached to you. It has to be tethered to you. Uh, it has to be committed. If, if it's not committed to you, it won't do you any good. Right? If, it's, if it, the anchor's not attached to the ship, you can throw it in there, but it's not going to do anything for the ship. It has to be connected. Second, the anchor has to go into a realm where you cannot go yourself. If you're on a boat, you don't just need the anchor to go in the water. Right? You're already in the water. That, the water is the problem, right? Water is constantly in flux. It is not stable. It's, it's always changing. It's always shifting. It's always moving on you. You can't get security in the water. What the anchor has to do is it has to go to a place to where you cannot get. It has to go to the bottom of the lake or the bottom of the sea where there are rocks that are immobile and stable, that are permanent. And if the anchor is both committed to you and then it enters into that realm and it locks onto those rocks, the stable, steady rocks, then the solid, steady, secure nature of those rocks is actually transferred through the anchor and the chain to the boat. And the author of Hebrews tells us that, that we need an anchor for the soul. What does that mean? It means that you, you need a spiritual anchor even more than a boat needs a, a physical anchor. Why? Because living in this world, in time and space and history, it's all like water spiritually. It is constantly shifting. It's constantly changing. There is no steady, stable ground on which to stand on. Nothing is secure here. Everything is in flux constantly. Everything changes. We live in a, an uncertain world with a, without a, a, a spiritual anchor. Our, our souls are adrift, right? They're, they're at risk, especially when hardship and suffering comes our way. Particularly, we're at risk then. Everything changes. But that's one thing that as you get older... Uh, and I'm not that old, but I'm, I'm getting a little older these days, uh, that you increasingly become aware of how much everything is constantly changing. Everything is changing. This Wednesday, uh, I 
my, my wife and I, we will move our oldest son into his college dorm. For how long? Anyone's guess is as good as mine. I don't know. But no matter how long he actually gets to stay here, there is a reality that he will come home to a different family and will welcome home a different son. Because undoubtedly, in whatever amount of time there is, he's going to have experiences that we are not a part of and we're going to have experiences that he's not a part of. It's a philosopher that says you cannot step one, uh, one foot into a, a river twice, right? Like you can't take the same step into a, a river twice because the river is constantly changing. It's not the same river. It's always changing. There, there's the reality that, that we live in a world where everything is changing. You and I, we are by nature constantly searching for something to anchor to. But the problem is nothing we find is solid enough to lean on. Think about some of the options. You decide to lean on your career, your success, your accomplishments. Well, what happens when there's a, a deep recession and that job comes into question or is taken from you or the company downsizes or they decide to go in a different direction or you have a great career and then you retire and that's no longer who you are. That's no longer what you do even. Or what if it's a relationship? What if it's a relationship, another human being, even if that relationship endures, even if it's a, a great and happy marriage that, that, that goes all the way to the finish line, uh, even if it's a, a dear friend who's always faithful or a, a loving parent who, who cares for you, nurtures you, uh, the reality is we all face death. That's a reality for all of us. And one day, the reality is either they will pass away leaving you to grieve them or you will pass away leaving them to grieve you. And this is, exposes sort of the great ir irony to the problem here. We all want to have someone unchangeably and immovably committed to us. Someone who will always be there and yet we ourselves cannot possibly be that for anybody else. You can't. Which leaves us to ask, are there any solid rocks out there in the universe to anchor onto? Is there anything solid and unchangeable that we can count on? And the answer that the Bible gives us is, well, first it, it sort of points us, the reason that you have this longing, that you long for someone like that is because you were created by someone like that. You were created by someone like that. And so the deepest longing of your soul by, by nature is to, to want to be reunited and reconnected to someone like that. The Bible says that Jesus alone is the anchor that your soul needs and longs for. You have to trust him. He's the only anchor that will be an anchor for you. There is no other alternative because, because the anchor you need cannot be of this world. This world, again, it's, it's water. It's water. It's constantly changing. The anchor cannot be of this world. It must come from the outside in order to be able to pass through the water of this world and go into another realm. And Jesus is the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that enters the inner place behind the curtain. He's the perfect anchor who comes from the outside. He's eternal. 
He's God, the second person of the triune God who spoke everything into existence in this world, this universe. Yet he enters into our world. He enters into it and he tethers himself to us, living the sinless life that that we could not live in our place and then going to the cross to die the death that we deserve for our sins. Then he's raised on the third day he gloriously is resurrected. He ascends to the Father's right hand where, where he's seated now. He goes into that realm, that most holy place that we cannot, anchoring us to a rock-solid, unshakable hope. Right? The, the inner place behind the curtain is, of course, a reference to the most holy place in the Old Testament tabernacle or the temple. Uh, when, when Jesus died on the cross, right, we, we, you read in the Gospels that the, the, the curtain in the temple that, that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple was literally torn in two. Symbolic of the reality that by faith in Jesus, we now have, all of us, access to God's presence. But the deeper reality is that Jesus is now seated at the Father's right hand. Like, he's not taking a break. Like, he's actively right there, right now, interceding for you, offering his high priestly prayer for you. And through faith in Jesus, we are anchored in the Father's presence for eternity. At the Father's right hand, he intercedes. And by his heavenly intercession, his high priestly prayer for you, he sustains you and secures you. There is great assurance here. I hope you're hearing this. Christ has gone, as it says in John's gospel, to prepare a place for you. That when he comes back, he's gonna bring you in with him. But for this to be true for you, For you to have real hope in this uncertain world, Christ has to be your anchor. He has to be your anchor. There is no other. If you don't trust God, if you don't trust Jesus, right, then who are you going to trust? Well, you're going to trust other people. You're going to trust other people. And eventually, they're going to let you down. They're going to let you down. Even the very best of them are going to let you down because they're going to die. If you don't trust in Christ, you'll have to trust in other people. And you'll do that until the pain of that, the pain of that eventually causes you to trust only in yourself, which will only lead to a hardened heart alienating you from all others. Only Christ is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. He must be trusted, which naturally leads us to ask, how do you do that? How do you do that? And our study of this passage helps give us some practical guidance on how to trust God. Especially thinking about Abraham's experience that the the author is pointing us to here. Like Abraham, first you have to look at God. You have to look at Jesus. You have to look at Jesus. Abraham didn't trust God because he promised him his life would always be easy. He'd always have everything he wanted in the timing that he wanted it in. Right? 25 years 100 years old, still waiting. Abraham believed, he trusted because, because he looked at God. He looked at God. You have to look at Jesus. You have to see him coming into this world for you. You have to see him living that perfectly righteous life that you cannot live. 
You have to see him willingly trading that for your sin and going to the cross in your place. You have to see him risen and glorified, victorious over sin and death. You have to see him interceding for you right now in the throne room of heaven. You have to picture him doing that for you. You have to see him there saying these things about you, that he's paid your debt in full, that you are not your sin. You are the righteousness of God, that you have been adopted into the family of God as his beloved child, his son, his daughter. You have to look at Jesus. You have to keep looking at Jesus. You have to see that your faithfulness comes from his faithfulness, that your faithfulness is a response to his faithfulness in your place. You have to look at him. You have to think on him. You have to sing about him. You have to sing to him. You have to rejoice in him. Over and over and over and over again, day by day. That has to be what gives shape to your trusting in him and living with him as your anchor for the soul. You have to look at Jesus. But secondly, in order to trust God, you need to understand that his promises almost always run deeper than your expectations. One reason why it's so hard to see how God is fulfilling his promises is because They promise more than what you expect, not less. For example, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And we read that and we think, great, desires of my heart. I'm going to be successful. You know, I'll have a good job. You know, I'm going to have good relationships. You know, things are going to go great, right? Someone's going to love me forever and, and so on. But God is a God who knows better than you what will truly satisfy those desires of your heart. He's a God who knows better than you the timing and the method and the path that he's going to take to satisfy those desires of your heart. And he says to you, in the midst of uncertainty, trust me, trust me. We lack perspective. It's, it's like the C.S. Lewis quote. I love that quote in The, in the Way to Glory, all right, about the child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot fathom what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He thinks, this is, this is great. Like, I got mud and water here. It's wonderful. But just cannot even possibly imagine how much greater the invitation is that God has for him. That's, that's how we are. We're far too easily pleased, far too short-sighted. Too often we, we get frustrated because God doesn't work like we think he should. He doesn't heal like we think, think he should. He doesn't, you know, end our suffering. We, where's the vaccine, Lord, right? Why is this still going on? Like he's not working in the timing that we want him to work in. We get frustrated, But I think we lack the perspective to understand and and we forget that yes, Jesus, when he came in his ministry, he came to heal, he came to redeem. But the the primary purpose for why Jesus came in his first coming was to go to the cross for us, to secure our healing and our redemption and our future glory. 
And when he comes again, that's when he's going to bring the fullness of this, right? That's when he's really going to bring it to, to be in our lives. And when he does, we will not be grumbling about anything this side of glory. We will not be complaining anymore about anything this side of glory. You have to trust that God knows your heart and what is best for you more than, what, than you do. Lastly, if you're going to trust God, you have to obey him unconditionally. That's part of trusting him. You have to obey him unconditionally. You have to obey him even if you think it's going to cost you. You have to obey him. There's a reality that any form of disobedience is a form of distrust. When we give in to sin, what we're saying is, God, I don't trust that what you have for me is as good as this. God, I don't trust that your timing is what is best for me. That's what we're saying. God, I'm afraid that what I'm going to lose through obedience is going to be greater than anything you're going to put back into my life through my obedience. Anything I'm going to lose by, my, uh, by, by obeying you, it's going to be greater. It's going to be a bigger loss than anything you could possibly put back into my life by listening and following you. But to trust God is to take him at his word and do what he says. To obey him. And what does he say to us? Well, he says a whole lot. Jesus says it can largely be summed up like this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a lot of applications that are brought to us throughout the scripture about what that looks like. He says to trust him. He says to press into his people. Press into him, press into his people. To not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. He says, do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. If you're going to trust him, you have to obey him unconditionally. Don't just look at this world and what's happening around you. Don't try to find your hope in the things of this world, jobs and relationships, elections, whatever. But look at Jesus. Look at him. Look at him there on the cross telling you it's done, it's accomplished. See him cut off for you that you might be brought in. See him anchoring you to the eternal presence of God. Trust in him and find an anchor a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have given us in Christ an anchor that, that cannot fail. And Jesus, help us by your grace to cling to you, to delight in your word, to abide with you in prayer, to obey you in trust. Holy Spirit, sustain us and assure us of all Jesus has done for us. Help us to trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.